We're going to be back in Ecclesiastes this morning, uh, moving through this series in one of the most unusual books in the Bible, one of the most contemporary books in the Bible, a book that speaks to us where we are. Ecclesiastes is all about the ravaging effect of death on meaning in life. Our series in Ecclesiastes has just been trying to pull that thread to trying to unpack the examples that the author gives us. So what good, for example, is your work and what you might accomplish if you're just going to die at the end? What good is money if you're just going to die at the end of your life? Can't take it with you. What good is pleasure if it's just fleeting, if it disappears and you still end up dead? This morning, we're going to talk about justice. What good is justice if all of us end up dead? My favorite novel, probably my favorite novel of all time, is the novel To Kill a Mockingbird. It's been back in the press lately because of a prequel that's come out. It's been pretty controversial. I'm just going to shelve that, push that to the side. haven't even read it. I'm going to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird for a second. This book is incredible. Probably most of you have read it uh, because I think it gets read in high schools all over the country and has for like the last 20 or 30 years. It's a book about a lot of things. A lot of wonderful subjects. It's about the simple joys of childhood. It's about a lost world, a southern front porch culture that's got a lot of beauty in it. It's about race. It's about poverty. It's about empathy with one another. It's about innocence and about the loss of innocence. And it's also a book about justice. So, most of you are probably familiar with the plot. The book is set in a small southern town in the Depression era. In this town, a black man has been falsely accused of sexual assault against a white woman. And that, that central storyline drives through the book. The book is framed around the trial of this man, the defense of this man by a steady, gracious lawyer named Atticus, and it's all viewed through the eyes of Addict's little daughter, a little girl named Scout. Now, Scout gets most of the attention in this book, partly because she's awesome. I mean, this, this character is incredible. One of the most amazing characters, I think, in American literature. But there's another character that gets less attention, but it's profound in his own way, and that's Scout's older brother, Jim. So Jim, a little bit older than Scout, a little bit more aware of what's going on, a little bit more invested in the issues of the trial. So, at one point, the children sneak into the courtroom. They're watching this trial play out. And watching the trial play out, Jim goes through a transformation that is profoundly realistic. So what's clear in this trial as the evidence gets presented, as the arguments go back and forth, is that the evidence is with the defense. There's no evidence that this man did what they're accusing him of doing. That's obvious even to this child who's watching his first trial. A child can see it, and not just because he's rooting for his father. It's clear. Then the verdict comes down. The kids are up in the balcony watching. Her father doesn't know that they're there. Jim is expecting justice to prevail. 
Jim has no reason to believe that institutions that are put there for your protection aren't benevolent. That they wouldn't ultimately validate what's right. Then the verdict comes down. This is a quote from the book. Judge Taylor was polling the jury. Guilty. 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 This is Scout's perspective. I peeked at Jim. His hands were white from gripping the balcony rail. And his shoulders jerked as if each guilty was a separate stab between them. Then when the children leave the courthouse, trying to get to their father out on the town square, Jim's face, as this is another quote, streaked with angry tears as we made our way through the cheerful crowd. It ain't right, he muttered, all the way to the corner of the square where we found Atticus waiting. It ain't right, Atticus, said Jim. No, son, it's not right. How could they do it? How could they? I don't know, but they did it. They've done it before, and they did it tonight, and they'll do it again. And when they do it, it seems that only children weep. That scene is a powerful example of a child coming to recognize the truth about the world. That the powerful are not always just. That some lives are valued more highly than others by those with the power to back up their claims to supremacy. Jim's response to these events rings true too. A little bit later in the story, still stewing over what he had seen. He says to the neighbor who's trying to cheer him up, soon as I get grown. Soon as I get grown. Jim still thinks that the reason justice didn't prevail here is that not enough people recognized injustice like he did. Jim is taking on the perspective in this story of what many people in college right now are thinking about the world. In college, it's easy to think that evil is what it is because evil, the evil people who are in power have managed to go unnoticed by what seems so clear to the rising generation. When you're young, you think injustice is there because the people before you just weren't paying attention. And then you start trying to do something about it. You start actually getting your hands dirty in the quest for justice. And then you realize what every generation has realized before you. That injustice is a reality because people are not always just. That there has always been, and best we can tell, will always be, great power on the side of evil. Ecclesiastes warns us against the assumption that what the world's been missing all along is us and our sense of justice our willingness to do something about it. You pay attention closely enough for long enough and you'll realize that justice just doesn't always win out. Not in this world. 
not the world we're living in. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. It's about how to live well in the world as it is, not as we wish that it were. So Ecclesiastes is about the problem of injustice. Ecclesiastes traces the problem of injustice, traces its power and its origins to a root that we might not always recognize, but that our texts are going to help us to connect with today. Ecclesiastes, just like it's done on all these other themes we've been unpacking, pulls the problem of injustice, the thread of injustice, all the way back to its root and finds at its root the problem of death. If we all die, what good is justice? That's the problem that Ecclesiastes wants to present to us today. We're going to try to let that problem land on us, right on our shoulders like a load of bricks. We're, not, we're going to try not to dodge it and move on with our day. We want to feel the weight of this problem. That's where most of our time will be this morning. Justice is a problem if death is our end. But we want to feel the weight of this problem. We want to let it sit on us for the same reason that we've said every week, Ecclesiastes is still in the Bible. It's here to paint this canvas black so that when Christ comes, the light that the darkness could not overpower will shine forth with all of its brilliance. We're going to let the darkness hang over us this morning so that we can see the light more clearly. Three things I want to I go through this morning. Justice is a problem if death is our end. That's claim number one. That's the one made by our text this morning. Claim number two, pointed to by our text, confirmed through all the Bible, justice is a threat if God is our judge. Claim number three, the light that shines in the darkness, justice is a promise if Jesus is our advocate. That's where we're going this morning. I want to begin by reading a a portion of uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. I'm going to read from verse 16. Through chapter 4, verse 3, this is one of two sections in Ecclesiastes we're going we're to walk through this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there's a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows? whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that's his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who were still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, 
and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. You guys ever noticed the, uh, the traditional statue representing justice? A lot of times it'll be on the, the, the front lawn or entrance, near the entrance to a courthouse. Pictured as a woman. A couple of major features that point to what's involved in justice. Help us recognize what our text this morning point us to as a problem in the world. So usually it's a statue, it's a figure of a woman. And in one hand, the woman is holding scales. And often, at least for the past several hundred years, the woman is also blindfolded. That points to one major thing that's got to be true for justice to prevail. People have got to be treated equally. The, the justice can't be looking to decide if, if the person they're ruling for is a person they like or not. It's just got to be about the evidence and how it comes out in the scales, no matter who it is. So equal dignity is necessary for justice. The other thing that the statue has is a sword. Usually not raised, usually standing beside the figure, but a sword. Because the other thing that's necessary for justice is not just that people have to be treated as if they have equal dignity, but those who choose to treat people as if they're not equal in dignity have to be punished for it. For justice to prevail, actions have to have consequences. That's what the sword represents. That you get what you deserve. Those two things, essential for justice, that everybody gets treated equally, and that those who choose not to treat others equally get punished for it, are the very two things that the author of Ecclesiastes points to as missing in his experience of the world. People aren't treated with equal dignity. People don't have to reap what they sow. He makes the first point in the passage we just read, chapter 3, verses 16 through chapter 4, verse 3. And then in another passage that we'll consider in a moment, chapter 8 and 9, he makes the second point, that actions just don't have consequences in his experience. So justice is, is lost on us. Let's start with chapter 3, what we've just read. There's two problems behind injustice. Both places, the problem, the, 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 the problem he's noticing has death under it. Here's the first one from chapter 3. If death is our end, human lives aren't worth equal protection. That's his observation in what we just read. If death is the end of us, then human lives just aren't worth equal protection. He begins the section by noticing something that's been all too common in our experience. Verse 16. In the place of justice, in the very place where people are supposed to get what they deserve, even there, in that place, there's wickedness. Think of a law court. Or in the era when he was writing of the city gates where the elders would sit and make decisions, uh, settle disputes among people who came to them. Even there, wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there, Wickedness. Wickedness sits in the judge's chair. Wickedness holds the gavel. Even the place of justice serves injustice. He's recognized this fact of human history and he's outraged by it. He's been taught that God cares about justice. Look at verse 17. I said in my heart, he's talking to himself, God will judge the righteous. And the wicked, there's a time for every matter and every work. He believes it. 
wants to believe it. He doesn't see it. Same thing comes up in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4 that we read. I saw all the oppressions done under the sun and the tears of the oppressed and nobody's there to comfort them. The power is with the oppressors. Those who have power use it to exploit those who don't. It's just the way things work. So who decides what lives are worth protecting? Not blind justice. Who decides? Those in power decide, according to what he's saying. And the way they make their decision about what lives are worth protecting is to ask themselves, what lives do I like? What lives are like mine? What lives are not inconvenient to me? Are not threatening to me? History is full of examples of this sort of power grab. Of a group of humans, one group of humans, who makes a claim to have the right to define another category of life as not worth protecting. We've prayed earlier for the, for the, out, the ongoing uh, fallout from the experience in Ferguson last year. One of the main campaigns that came out of that was the Black Lives Matter signs and shirts. That does get straight to the heart of it. We're claiming that a, this category of life that, that for too long has been defined as having less value is not less valuable. Justice says these lives matter. History's full of other examples. Even just the last hundred years, examples of a category of person being treated as if they didn't have the right to live. So think of the, Assyri- or, excuse me, of the uh, Armenians being massacred in Turkey in World War I. Central and Eastern European Jews being massacred in Europe in World War II. Think of in the 1990s, what happened in Yugoslavia and Rwanda. In the 2000s, what's happened in Sudan, leaving hundreds of thousands dead and millions displaced. And think of what happens through the work of groups like Planned Parenthood, which has been in the news a lot lately, for their advocacy of an abortion industry that is, in a similar way, different but similar, saying here's a category of life that isn't to be protected. All of human history is full of humans who have the power to do so, saying lives not like theirs are lives that aren't protectable aren't worthy of the same protection. And in, in this case, our author has pointed us towards why that power grab makes sense. Did you notice what came in between, as we read earlier? What came in between his, his concerns in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3 and his concerns in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4? Right in between his two times where he's throwing up his hands and saying, even in the place of righteousness, there's wickedness. The power is with the oppressors. Right in between it comes this section about death, about the fact that humans die just like animals die. So who's to say that the humans go one place and the animals go some other place? Who's to say any of us are any more valuable than any other life forms? He's saying if, if animals are dust and we kill them without thinking about anything's wrong with it, and humans are dust, why not, why not let the same rules apply to human interactions that apply in the animal world? Might makes right. Survival of the fittest. If I can do it, I have the right and the freedom to do it. I think that's why he puts this section about death right in between 
his concerns about oppression. Lives are not being equally valued and protected. Why not? Well, ultimately, we all die. So might makes right. If death is the end of all of us, is there a moral difference between the the mechanized, systematic killing and processing of chickens at at an industrial chicken farm in a death camp like Auschwitz? If death is the end of us all, we end up like dust one way or the other. Survival of the fittest makes sense. And our concepts of justice, viewed in light of the animal world around us, they're empty. That's what he's saying. Now he's saying this as someone who doesn't believe it. He feels that that is not right. He's outraged by the injustice that he's seeing. But he can't deny that the injustice exists. And when he thinks about death, he's not sure how he can say it shouldn't. Are you bothered by injustice? You are, aren't you? by people who use power to oppress those who can't resist them. It's right that you should be bothered by it. The reason you're bothered by it, chapter 3, verse 14, excuse me, verse 11, chapter 3, verse 11 says, is that God has put eternity into your heart. You know in your heart, that death isn't the end. That it can't be. That our lives are too valuable for that. You know it by instinct. But if death is the end, your instincts are wrong. So that's the first, that's the first problem that he teases out. Much more quickly, flip over. I want to show you the same thing gets said in another place in Ecclesiastes. Same pattern. This is chapter 8. Flip over to chapter 8. I'm not going to read this in total, go into it in as much detail. I just want you to get a sense of his angst, of what he's noticing that we ought to notice is true about justice if death is the end. If death is the end. So if the first problem was if death is the end, then human lives just aren't worth protecting. They aren't worth equal protection. Here he's saying if death is the end, then the, our actions won't match up with consequences. Our actions just don't have consequences. They have to for justice to prevail. The sword has to be usable. But in our experience, that isn't the case. So in chapter 8, he's talking about injustice again. He starts with what he observes, with the tension between what he sees around him and what he believes about God. And once again, he ties it back to the problem of death. So, look at verses 8, 10, and 11. Excuse me, chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they'd done such things. This also is vanity. What's he saying there? The wicked get what the righteous get. They got a decent burial. People are praising them. They're going in and out of the holy place as if they're fine. Their actions as the wicked are not being exposed. Then verse 11, similar point. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is 
fully set to do evil. What's he saying there? Actions don't lead to immediate consequences. So people figure, why not? If I'm not going to get caught for it, if nothing's going to be demanded of me, why not do what I want to do? How many of you would return your library books if there were no fines? How many of you would really care how fast you were going on the interstate? No matter the signage. If you knew that there were no cops. Chapter, four, or chapter 8, verse 14, similar example. Again, the disconnect between actions, consequences, no justice. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. What's he saying there? Actions and consequences just don't match up in our experience. A lot of times the people who deserve to be punished get off scot-free. People who are innocent, they have to bear the consequences. They have to bear the consequences of wickedness. Think about Proverbs, predictions of blessing and peace and plenty for those who are wise, of ruin for those who are wicked. Our author's saying, not always. And we know he's right. Innocent children get hit by cars, die of leukemia. Drug kingpins and human traffickers live in luxury. Everything their hearts could desire to a ripe old age, that happens. And as many as 80% of sexual abuse cases go unreported. Which is to say, the consequences of that abuse get borne by the innocent victim whose life is scarred by that event and not by the one who perpetrated that event. That happens. He's right. And in chapter 9, he comes to his biggest concern. All this I laid to heart, verse 1 of chapter 9, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, and they don't seem to, what they're getting doesn't seem to line up with what they've done. Whether it's love or hate from God for us, whether it's love or hate, man doesn't know. Both are before him. And it's the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who doesn't sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead what's he saying he's saying that the main consequence that everybody faces the main end for all of our lives is death the same event happens to all of us the same event happens to the human trafficker living in luxury to an old age and to the child who dies of leukemia at three And if the same event happens to all, if we all have the same consequences, then how can there be justice? We're treated equally. No matter what we've done. It's vanity. How can we know what God, whether the word says, to paraphrase what he's saying here, 
I know that it won't be good with the wicked. Verse 13 of chapter 8 says, Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he doesn't fear God. I know that. I know that's what the Bible says. I believe it. But we all die. The same thing happens to all of us. So how can I know? I can know that it's said about him, but I can't see it. If we all end up in the same place, why worry about how you live in the meantime? What good is justice's sword if the same sword falls down over all of us? Well, if you want justice, friends, and you should, and you do, if you want justice, what you really want is a life that doesn't end with death. If death is the end, then justice isn't happening. There's no good reason that it should. And in fact, it never does. It won't and it can't. The only hope for justice we crave is a God who sees everything and human lives that go on to stand before him after death. The only hope, let me say it again, this statement is the reason for the two passages we've read in Ecclesiastes, to create this sense in you. The only hope any of us have for any true justice is a God who sees everything and human lives that won't end at death, but will go on to stand before him. That's what our author's hanging on to. This, these passages that I've read, there's a tension there between his hope, his hope for a final justice, and what he's seeing around him. I read chapter 3, verse 17. I said to my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. It's not what I'm seeing around me, but I, he has to. Just read it from chapter 8. Maybe the most, most important examples at the end of the book. Chapter 12, the final word from our author. The, what he calls the end of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That testimony is backed up throughout the rest of the Bible. Despite what we see, despite the fact that we aren't told why God allows what God allows here and now, despite what seems like the triumph of evil all around us. God sees all, God remembers all, and God will bring every deed into judgment. This same God who sees all things, who remembers all things, this This same God is the God who defines the dignity of all those that he's made. The same God who defines the dignity of Jewish lives and black lives and unborn lives because he's created them to matter whether the powers that be recognize that fact or not. And no human has the right to claim a class of life is not worth protecting because God will pass judgment in the end that will happen. Now, that is really 
good news for everyone who's burdened by the injustice that's around us, by the futility or vanity of establishing justice on our own. That's really good news. The notion of judgment by God on us after death is one of the most distasteful things about Christianity at first blush. And so you connect with the message of Ecclesiastes and other places that are like it. That it's that or no justice at all. The distaste that comes natural to us at the, at the notion that God would judge us after death is born out of our distance from injustice, relatively speaking. From the comfort of our affluence and our peace. From, from the fact that we live in more ways than most places in the world. We live with the protection of a civil government rather than needing to be protected from it. If we lived in another time and another place, the notion of a God who judges, who sees all, who judges even the powerful we can't resist, sounds like good news. But here's the thing. Experience tells us that we want the judgment that the Bible tells us is coming. The Bible tells us something else that we would rather not acknowledge. The Bible tells us that all of us are guilty. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Basically what those that Ecclesiastes is writing about have said. Death is the end. We don't see justice happening around us. There's no God. No one's watching. Might makes right. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. Oh, there it is. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, to see if you understand. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And there is none who does good. Not even one. Not even me. Not even you. What have you done when you thought nobody would notice? You angry about mass killings? You should be. But Jesus says that the one who's angry against his brother in his heart is guilty of murder. Or are you one of the millennials who's taken up the cause of sex trafficking in Thailand? You should. But have you considered how watching porn in the privacy of your room is pouring gas on the fire of sexual exploitation all around the world? The same justice of God that is our only hope for justice is a justice that finds us guilty. Justice is a threat if God is our judge. But friends, justice is a promise if Christ is our advocate. We read this text early in our service. Romans chapter 3. The gospel is the news of how God can be both just and justifier. 
how he can both demand punishment for sin upon which all justice rests and justify those that trust him, that look to him in faith. The gospel is the message of Christ come for those who had fallen short of God's glory. Flip back over to Romans chapter 3. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They point to that's what we're going to need. We're guilty. They've shown us our sin. The prophets have told us judgment is coming. They point to what the law says, to, to the righteousness of God that's needed for us. But now the righteousness of God has come through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He quotes, he's referring just above this to the passage from the Psalms that we've just read together. It confirms all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. If we're going to be justified, if justice that we crave is to be possible, and yet we are to survive it, then we've got to be justified, Romans 3.24, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How? Because God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Jesus' life absorbed the just punishment for all of our decisions, large and small, that other lives are worth less than our own. He has, in his own blood, has absorbed the just punishment we crave, but that stands pointed at us. He has stood between us And the punishment that we deserve and by his blood has made us clean. Now we receive it by faith. This showed God's righteousness at the present time. Verse 26. So that he might be just. Our only hope for real justice in the world. And at the same time, justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Who are willing to acknowledge before him. I do deserve what I hope happens to every sex trafficker out there. I deserve the same thing. I'm hopeless and helpless unless somebody else stands for me. So to continue this image of the law court in which we stand accused, 1 John speaks of Jesus as an advocate, as a lawyer. And what's true of a lawyer? A lawyer stands between the client and the judge, and represents the client's interests to the judge. If the advocate speaks well, the client is speaking well. If the advocate presents compelling evidence, the client is presenting compelling evidence. What's true of the advocate is true of the client. Jesus stands before the judge who judges all as our advocate, so that when that judge looks at us, what he sees is Jesus. And in Jesus, the just judge has become the justifier of all who have faith in him. Now, here's my last word for you. This is not just about you getting off the hook. It's also about you being energized and mobilized to seek justice. The justice that pleases God. The justice that God has promised he will establish one day. This motivates you and mobilizes you to seek it in your world, in your sphere, wherever you can. Because friends, if what motivates you to tweet about what's going on in Ferguson or in Thailand is a sense of your own heroism, a desire to be part 
of what looks good, if what you're looking for is resume building material, then your advocacy for justice will not outlast the world as it is. It will get crushed by the powers that don't care what hashtags you use. It's only if you know you don't have to justify yourself by your justice seeking that you're set free to do it over the long haul with joy, with perseverance, and with the confidence that comes from knowing what you do may not change the social structures around you, but it bears witness. It testifies truly to the judgment that God will bring through the justice that he will establish to the kingdom in which Christ is all that will go on free of the curse of death forever and ever and ever. That's what you get to do. Father, we want more from our justice seeking than it can ever give us. And sometimes that blinds us to the fact that the justice we seek is a justice that stands over against us. Do not let us settle for this kind of blindness. Protect us from seeking justice as a way to justify ourselves. Help us to bear witness to what you love, to what you have promised to establish, to what we know will never end and never fail. And help us to cling to the, just, to the justifier of the unjust as our only hope in this life and the next. Help us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.